you turn in your Bibles, in your copy of God's Word, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We are in the middle of a sermon series titled, From the Cross to the Crown. And throughout this series, we have looked at a few of the significant events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three weeks ago, this series began, and we looked at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Two weeks ago, we considered Peter's threefold denial of Christ, and last week we looked at Jesus' trial where he was condemned to die. And today we consider the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now I want to make a disclaimer before we begin. It's easy for sermons on the crucifixion to be weighty, and make no mistake, today's sermon will be weighty, but it's a weightiness that's filled with hope. We read this text as Christians, meaning we believe Jesus conquered death, that he rose victoriously from the grave, and that his kingdom will know no end. So let's turn our attention to God's holy word, John chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. So he then handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of, Clop- Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word to us this morning. This is the moment that all of redemptive history has anticipated. This was the promised seed, the better Adam who never sinned. This was the promised sacrifice, the better Isaac who would offer up his own life. This was the ultimate exodus, 
the better Moses, who would lead his people into the promised land. This was the king of kings, the better David, who would reign victorious and whose kingdom would know no end. This was the eternal son of God, the one by whom, through whom, and to whom all things belong. This was the infinite God incarnate in human flesh, fully God, fully man, nailed to the cross. The gospel writers don't give us a lot of the gruesome details of the crucifixion. John particularly only makes one statement. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And while the gospel writers themselves do not give us a lot of the detail of the crucifixion, we still know quite a bit about this form of suffering. It's likely that it was invented by the Persians, but perfected by the Romans. Now, the term perfected might not be the best term to use because the Roman desire was to combine as maximum shame with maximum punishment, maximum pain for as long as possible, for as long and as painfully as possible. The scourging that Jesus endured prior to his crucifixion was brutal enough that many victims died from it alone. The whip which was used on Jesus was most likely leather tails with scraps of bone fragment and metal attached to the end, which would dig into his flesh and then they would rip it away. And it's onto that back that the wooden beam of the cross would be placed and carried to the place of execution. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus' suffering was so great that another man, Simon, was charged to carry his crossbeam, to the place called the place of a skull. And he was nailed to the cross in each of his wrists or his hands and in his feet. I've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ once, maybe twice. If you've ever seen it, you know how hard it is to watch that. And yet, we also know that Mel Gibson's visualization did not go nearly far enough. Isaiah prophesied, that just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His suffering was so great, the cruelty acted upon him was so awful that he no longer looked like a human being. And through it all, he ruled over it all. All of the events of the crucifixion and leading up to it were perfectly orchestrated by the divine will of God to accomplish his ultimate plan of salvation. And so with that in mind, consider first with me the rule of Christ. The rule of Christ. Verse 16 tells us that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And then in verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a school, which in Hebrew is called Gagatha. The Greek text here simply reads, they took charge of Jesus. And yet, look what Jesus did. The text simply reads, he went out. Jesus wasn't drugged out, kicking and screaming. He went out on his own accord, just as Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. John's gospel is full of irony, and he wants us to see the irony here. Though they think they are in charge, Pilate and the chief priests, 
Jesus is exactly where he had planned on being for all of redemptive history. Consider two texts with me. First is from Acts chapter 2, which reads, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then the second verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From before time began, from eternity past, before the very act of creation, it was God's plan to redeem mankind by the works of his Son. Jesus is exactly where he had planned on being for all of redemptive history. And as they nailed him to the cross, John 19, 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, Pilate writes this out of malice, if you will, out of revenge. It's kind of like a final gut punch. In essence, he's, he's taunting the Jews. There's been this sort of power struggle between Pilate and the chief priest. Mike talked about it a little bit last week. And this is kind of Pilate's last punch that he can put in. A king conquers and rules, Pilate says. A king defeats enemies and rules kingdoms. And Pilate is essentially proclaiming, behold your king on the cross. If this is your king, what does that say about you, his, his people? And while the chief priest didn't like this, of course, look at verse 21. The chief priests were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. The chief priests did not want to be identified with Christ. They did not want Pilate to assert that Christ was their king, and so they asked Pilate to change the inscription. But remember, Pilate is taking revenge on them. He says, no, what I have written, I have written. But here's more irony. What Pilate wrote on the inscription was true. And in his refusing to change the inscription, he was refusing to change the truth into a lie. Pilate doesn't recognize it, but he is a foil in God's story of redemption. Pilate thinks the power is his, but in reality, God is in complete control. Pilate is mocking this people and this king. He thinks a king conquers and rules. He thinks a king defeats enemies and rules kingdoms, and he's absolutely correct. Pilate fails to see how Jesus on the cross is that king, but he is commentator wrote a king conquers provides rules and makes peace christ our king conquered our enemy the devil provided forgiveness of our sins rules in our hearts and makes peace between sinners and god all these kingly deeds jesus achieved by dying on the cross for us so it is proper for him to be to have been hailed as king there it was god's will that the truth of his son be attached to his cross. This is the king of kings, and not merely the king, but the king of kings. And real quickly, notice something else. It's written that this message was inscribed in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. 
Now, we know from outside sources that multilingual crucifixion notices were not unusual. The Romans would have used them as a way to warn everybody that if you commit a crime like this person, you will suffer the fate of this person. It was written in the various languages so that everybody could read it and understand. And yet God uses it for his purposes as well. This is your king. Everybody present can read the inscription. Jesus is king for everyone. Yes, he is the promised king of the Jews, their savior if they would trust in him. But he is more than that. He is the king and savior of the Greeks and the Romans as well. Indeed, he is the savior of the world, the lamb who was slain to purchase for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Pilate thinks he is in control. The chief priests think they are in control. But in reality, they are pawns in God's grand story of redemption. Jesus is in complete control. Consider now the role of Christ. The role of Christ. And the first thing that we will see is that of substitute. Substitute. Look again at verse 18. There they crucified him. And with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. The other gospel accounts tell us that these two men were dying as thieves. John is most assuredly wanting us to recall Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The Romans wanted to shame Jesus by placing him in the middle of these two criminals. And yet, it is precisely for criminals like these, lawbreakers like these, that Jesus came to redeem and forgive. From the moment Jesus began his earthly ministry, he was mocked for associating himself with sinners. And yet it was Jesus who said, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the testimony of scripture is clear. You are a sinner, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. The law of God demands perfect obedience. For it, it must make those demands. A single sin against the infinitely holy God is treason against the creator of all things. And our sin demands death. And God, knowing the state of our unrighteousness, knowing the state of our neediness, knowing that we could never in all of eternity cleanse ourselves enough to be restored to him, sent us Jesus. He sent us Jesus to bear the penalty that we deserved. Like the two thieves hanging on the cross on either side of him, we deserved to be crucified on the cross. But Jesus was crucified. He had no sin of his own. In all of life and thought and indeed, Jesus remained sinless. He perfectly obeyed the Father's will. There was a Dutch theologian who was born in the 1850s. His name was Herman Bavink. And he wrote this. It was one, it was one single work that Christ accomplished, but one so rich, so valuable in the eyes of God, that the righteousness of God was completely satisfied by it. All the demands of the law were fully met by it, and the whole of our eternal salvation was secured by it. 
Christ lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death we were supposed to die. In every sense of the word, Christ is our substitute. But he's not merely our substitute. He's also our righteousness. Righteousness. For the purpose of time, we're not going to read through the text again, but we're moving now to verse 23 where we see the soldiers casting lots for the clothing of Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest. It's hard for me to picture Jesus in this state. In an effort to bring maximum shame upon Jesus, he was stripped naked. The shame of nakedness is part of sin's curse. In the Garden of Eden, prior to sin entering the world, Adam and Eve worked the garden and they were naked. And it wasn't until they fell into sin that their nakedness became a source of shame. And they sought to cover themselves, remember? Jesus had no sin. He should have had no shame. And yet here's another reason that the cross should give us Christians so much hope. Jesus is identifying so much with our sin. Scripture says he became sin. He's identifying so much with our sin that he also identified with our shame. And having endured our sin and our shame, he clothes us. The man who is stripped of his clothes clothes us in righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Another theologian said, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us in righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. By believing in Christ, our sins are transferred to his cross and his righteousness clothes. It clothes our shame. And so, Christian, we do not stand before God fearful or ashamed by what we have done. The cross of Christ enables us sinners to stand before confidently God's throne. Jesus is our substitute. He is our righteousness. He is our Savior. Savior. Beginning in the middle of verse 25 now, Jesus is hanging from the cross, and he sees his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know to be John. And we read this. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Thirty years or so earlier, Mary and Joseph presented Jesus at the temple. Simeon blessed Jesus there, and and in his blessing, he was essentially declaring that, that God's plan from before time began is being accomplished and fulfilled through this child. And at that time, Simeon also had a message for Mary, a warning, if you will, for Mary. We read that message in Luke 2, 35, when when he tells her, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. Now, while Mary may not have understood the pain that she would befall when Simeon gave her this message, she certainly understands his declaration now. Her soul, a mother's soul, has been pierced as she watches her son be crucified. And Jesus sees her pain. 
And he makes provision for her. He directs her to John. He says, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. Jesus displays compassion. He displays honor to his mother. He is still ministering to people from the cross. uh, John would care for Jesus' earthly mother. Now what I'm going to say next is pure speculation. I I don't know if this is true or not, but I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus chose the one disciple who would die of old age to care for his mother. And yet... This was not the primary way that Jesus cared for his mother either. Notice how he addresses her. He calls her woman. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is simultaneously declaring his love for his mom. He's making physical provisions for her life. But he's also telling her that she should not approach him merely as mother, but as a member of of a sinful human race, as a descendant of Adam and Eve. He's saying, Mary, you have to have faith, not in me as an earthly son, but as the son of God who has come to redeem the sins of mankind. Mary, I understand your grief is real, but your sin demands a savior and I am he. That's why I have come. That's why I have willingly come to this moment. Mary must not look at Jesus as simply her son, but as her Savior. For all who would trust in him, from his own earthly mother, to one of the thieves on the cross, who though we didn't look at it, repented and believed, to to you sitting in these chairs here today, he will be the Savior for all who would turn to him in faith. He is our substitute. He is our righteousness. He is our Savior. And thus far we've considered the rule of Christ, the role of Christ, Let's now consider Christ's victory, the victory of Christ. Looking at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There was a man in early church history who was named Saint Anselm. He lived about 900 years ago, and he put much thought into the question, why did God have to become man? And he wrote this, Sinful man owes God a debt for sin, which he cannot repay, and at the same time, He cannot be saved without repaying. In other words, apart from something or someone outside of us, we are helpless and hopeless. We owe a debt we cannot pay and we cannot be saved without paying the debt. Helpless and hopeless. And that's why God became man. Anselm again wrote, The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that same person must be God and man. We see Christ's humanity in these verses. We see it throughout this entire text, of course. But but Jesus says, I am thirsty. Again, we should see the irony of that statement. The word of God who spoke the seas into creation. 
the one who is the source and giver of life, who is himself the spring of living water. Uh, Earlier in John, it says a water springing up to eternal life. That one cries, I am thirsty. Yes, in his drinking the sour wine, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. Psalm 69, 21 said, For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy, but he is thirsty. The pain and suffering he endured is beyond comprehension. He's most certainly lost more fluids and has had suffered from the most severe dehydration. And so having drank this vinegar or this sour wine and in thirst in his humanity and fulfilling a prophecy from his divinity, Jesus said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It was finished. It's a single word in the Greek. It is finished. To telestai. To everybody who was there on that dreadful day, it would have seemed to be a cry of defeat. But in actuality, it was a cry of victory. Jesus communicates so much in a single word. It means his work was complete. It's an accounting term, meaning paid in full. And so we ask specifically, what is finished? Certainly his pain and his suffering is ending as he gives up his spirit and dies. Certainly all the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament relating to the life and death of the promised seed, the promised Messiah, are now fulfilled. But most assuredly, his work for our salvation is now finished. That word, telestai, was, was often used in a transaction when a purchase was completed, meaning that there was no further payment necessary. And so as a commentator wrote, when Jesus spoke this word, he was declaring that he had now paid every last penny of his people's sin debt to God's justice and that his redemption has been fully and eternally accomplished. For those of you in this room who have repented and turned to Jesus Christ for your salvation, do you understand the extent, the finality the assurance of your salvation when he says it is finished. Let me ask you a few questions. Which of your sins did Jesus pay for on the cross? Was it only those sins that you had committed before you placed your faith in Jesus? And after salvation, it's now up to you to keep yourself righteous. Was it only those sins that you had committed before you had been baptized and after you've been lifted back up out of those waters, now it's up to you? If you believe there's a cutoff date for which some of your sins are forgiven, then your salvation is not complete. It's not really finished, which would make Jesus a liar. But we know Jesus is not a liar. I can't preach next week's sermon because I don't think anybody would forgive me for that. But the re- resurrection is proof That Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Roman Catholics teach that ongoing sacrifice or penance must be prescribed to atone for your sin. I've heard Christians say that if you have unconfessed sin in your life when you die, you will not be saved. Both are errors. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Christian, Jesus was able to proclaim it is finished because he was not laying down his life for some of your sins, but all of them. He did not forget any of your sins. He did not lose any of your sins, nor did he leave any of your sins for you to deal with on your own. With a victory cry, the righteous law of God was perfectly held. God's holy wrath for sin was poured out and satisfied. Every prophet and prophecy was fulfilled. As the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And yet we often fall into patterns in which we seek to obtain our own righteousness. Now I'm not talking about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow over our sin leads us to repentance. It leads us back to the cross. But we often work as if it's not finished. We often think we must do this or that to make up for what we did here or there. A lot of Christians needlessly experience self-hatred or disgust, believing that they are unworthy and rejected due to their flaws and shortcomings. And if salvation was obtained by any amount of righteousness from ourselves, that would be accurate. However, the reality is that Jesus has already eliminated sin as a barrier to our approval from God. And he clothes us in righteousness, which allows us to come to God in confidence. If God were to look at your works, he's going to see unworthiness. He's going to see a wretched sinner who even in the midst of doing good things often had impure motives. But God doesn't look at your works. He looks at the works of Christ who died, yes, and who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hanging from the cross, Jesus did not say, I did my part, now it's time for you to do your part. He did not say obey and earn. He did not say forgiveness is possible. He said it is finished. This was the priceless blood that paid our ransom. Our sin was the sin that drove the nails into his hands. This is the redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. This is the savior who stands before the holy judge and who pleads our case based on his own merits. This was the promised one who is faithful to all that God commanded, who crowns us with loving kindness, who waits for us in the promised land, and whose glory we will behold for all of eternity. At the cross, God's wrath and mercy meet. He has made a way for sinners to be counted and made righteous. But friend, if you've not yet turned to him in faith, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Today is the day that you stop trusting in your own obedience, in your own righteousness. On the cross, Jesus drank God's cup of wrath for sinners who would repent and trust in him. But for those who die without faith in Christ, the wrath of God is yet upon you. And you will spend in eternity paying the penalty for your sin. And once you have been there for a thousand years, you will suffer the agony that you are no closer to paying off your sin debt than when the payment plan first began. It will take an eternity of destruction to satisfy God's wrath, to satisfy the injustice, the treason that you commit against him. 
every day. Friends, there is a heaven to long for and a hell to fear. And the only way to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be restored, is to, the, is to turn to the Savior that he sent for you. To the one who is worthy of all of our surrender. And to fail to turn to the one he provided, his very own son, is the greatest offense you could ever commit against the infinitely holy God. And so if you've never turned to him in faith, do so today. Repent of your sin. Repentance is a sincere and intentional turning away from sin and turning towards God. In repentance, there is a deep awareness of one's own sinfulness and there is, there is a desire to turn away from it. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe. Your very soul depends on it. And Christian, if you're anything like me, it's easy to get back in the routine of thinking that Christ did not actually finish the work. When we sink into that routine of thinking it's up to me to earn any amount of salvation, we cheapen the cross, we cheapen grace. Christian, we ourselves need to be reminded of these truths Every day. Our right standing before God is not based on any of our living, but it's based on his loving kindness and mercy through his son. Yes, we seek to live a life of obedience, but not as a means of salvation. Instead, it is a grateful response and a love for what Christ has done for us. So Christian, if that's you today, if you've sunken into the routine of self-works and self-righteousness, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and find peace. If you've turned to Christ for the first time today, or perhaps you have questions, that's what we are here for. We would love to talk to you. In addition, uh, Scripture teaches that baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian life. If you have not taken that step and would like to be baptized, or if you would like to join this church in membership, we would love to talk to you about that as well. We have a number of ways that you can do that. The first is very simple. At the conclusion of this service, Pastor Mike, Pastor Kirk, and myself will be in the foyer. Come talk to one of us. If you'd prefer to schedule some time later this week, you can do a couple things. The first is there is a paper connect card in the seat back in front of you. Fill that out and put it in the basket at the back of the worship center. Alternatively, you can scan that QR code, fill out the digital connect card, and we will get back with you later this week. Church, I thank you for your attentiveness as I sought to preach God's word. God is so good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the gift of our salvation. Father, we are reminded of the greatness of your love and mercy. Through your son's sacrifice, we have been given the gift of salvation and the promise of eternal life. We are in awe of your infinite wisdom and of your perfect plan that you would send your only son to die for us, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserved. Your love for us is, is beyond our understanding. We are grateful for the grace that you have shown us. And as we've reflected on the sacrifice of Jesus, 
we are also reminded of his victory over sin and death. Through his death and resurrection, we have been set free from the power of sin and are given new life in Christ. We are empowered to live lives that honor you and to share your love with others. And so we ask that the truth of your word would continue to transform us and that we would always remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and help us to live lives that exalt your greatness and bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.